Let's have the discussion. You're listening to Canter with Scott and Adam. Hello and welcome to Canter. I'm Adam Breeze and together with my co-host Scott Hillier, we chat with the world famous author, Robert Connell Clark of Bioagronomics Group. Robert has authored several books on cannabis, including Marijuana Botany, The Propagation and Breeding of Distinctive Cannabis, which has sold nearly 2 million copies. Robert's latest book, Cannabis Evolution and Ethnobotany, explores and challenges our understandings of cannabis taxonomy, whilst delving deep into our history and interaction with the plant as humans. Enjoy the episode and be sure to check us out on Instagram at Canter Podcast. Hello and welcome to Canter. I'm Scott. I'm joined here by my co-host Adam. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you very much. And we've got a very special guest today, uh, someone that we've known about for a long period of time and someone that we greatly respect. And he's been very kind to give us his time to help educate our listeners, Mr. Robert Connell Clark. How are you doing, Robert? I'm fine, you guys. Thanks for having me on your show. That's it's an absolute pleasure and uh, an honour to have you on the show, mate. Thank you very much. Uh, Robert, for our listeners that aren't familiar with you, could you maybe give us a brief rundown of your career and uh, who you are and your journey through cannabis? Okay. Um, yeah, it started quite a while ago, very early 70s at university, where many uh, journeys with cannabis begin. Um, I became really interested in uh in cannabis, the plant, um, how it grew, you know, it's being a short day plant. It's being, uh, uh, grown in so many places. I found that really fascinating. So I wrote an undergraduate dissertation called the botany and ecology of cannabis, um, for uh, my undergraduate dissertation at the university of California, Santa Cruz. And, since then, I've gone on to write other books about cannabis. My academic interests have expanded. I'm really trained later on as an ethnobotanist. So I study the, the relationship between humans and plants. In, the, in my case, humans use the cannabis plant. And cannabis is found all around the world, used by many, many different cultures for a variety of very important reasons, um, primarily fiber, food, and drugs. And it's a marvelous plant. There's no more no plant that's more complex and interesting to me than cannabis. So it's really uh, cannabis that formed my career, and uh, it's cannabis I still research. Yeah, I uh, I second that. That I I just feel like it's such a fascinating plant with so many facets. Uh, there's so much to learn about one individual plant. It's it's, it's uh, the sort of thing that can consume you very easily. I, I believe. Yeah. It- there's so much that the plant can do for human culture. I mean, on many different levels, it, it's uh, just time to treat it like other crop plants, you know, and other useful plant allies. We have plants we use every day and are very familiar with. And uh, cannabis used to be like that for many cultures. And, and it's becoming, uh, it's returning to that state now. I feel it's, it's gratifying. It's good to see yeah, it is. It is really positive to see uh, a bit of a groundswell occurring uh, in the common day, in the present day. Um, even seeing the uh, the referendum that just closed off yesterday in New Zealand, um, seeing people open up uh, to the plant and acknowledge that there are benefits and are different ways to do things other other than prohibition. It's it's quite positive to see. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So, Rob, there's so much that we want to talk talk with you about, um, but I guess the the easiest intro is uh, to talk about the the various books that you've released um, to kick things off, because you've been releasing texts that have been very highly regarded in the industry uh, for what am I looking at? Nearly four decades. Um, so, are you able to tell us uh, about the the four primary texts that you have released, starting with marijuana botany? Um, and what sort of inspired you to write each of these books? Yeah, okay. Um, well, Marijuana Botany, which was published in, what, 81? Yeah. Um, that grew directly from my undergraduate uh, dissertation. Um, Marijuana Botany group sounds even, even if it's not connected. Um, cannabis Evolution, I mean uh, – Later books also all uh, operate around the same theme, basically. But marijuana botany was once again botany. It was like it followed on the botany and ecology of cannabis. Um, and it really, it, it was my effort to just bring science that was known for other plants and apply it to the, the cannabis plant. And it turned out to be really a, a seminal effort in, in educating people. It, wasn't really my aim at the time. It was just to produce a book to spread scientific information, but it became a bit of a textbook. And I estimated with my publisher the other day, we don't, don't really know, but uh, if you include other language publications, there are well more than 2 million of those books in, in uh, circulation. Now. That's amazing. And that, uh, yeah, that isn't what I ever expe- expected, but also in the early seventies, I meant around a, uh, time I went to university was when normal was just beginning, you know, it's just done a great job in New Zealand, you know, and that group, uh, national organization for reform of marijuana laws, that was just getting started. So, you know, I've seen the whole progress of, uh, the human cannabis relationship as it is evolving before our eyes right now. It's, it's fantastic. But so marijuana botany was, it became sort of the basic text. Um, after moving to the Netherlands and really moving into a hashish culture, I decided it was uh, high time to have a book about hashish, which became, uh, once again, kind of a major tome. Um, for those who are interested in hashish, it's proven to be very, very uh, entertaining. A bit about how hash, traditional good hash was made, a lot of uh, ethnobotanical sort of information. It starts out with that, a lot of history, um, but also right up to how. Uh, High-tech hash is being made up until the year 2000. It's a bit dated now, quite frankly, but the history is still um, still good. And the major tome is really Cannabis um, Evolution and Ethnobotany. I wrote that with Mark Merlin, University of Hawaii, ethnobotanist, geographer. Um, we're old friends. We took 13 years to write that book. Um it's in print. It's from University of California Press, and University of California Press is in Berkeley, California. They also have offices in London. Um, it is really an ethnobotanical look and historical look at the cannabis plant with an evolutionary sort of side to it. We propose uh, hypotheses about how the plant may have evolved. They're only hypotheses. People challenge them, which is healthy. We really like that. The whole idea is to... Uh, to encourage debate. Um, 
it's very difficult when, when studying prehistory, you always have a lack of evidence. And it's uh, you have to make hypotheses about how things could have gone down, you know. So, And as you gain more information, there's more strength, more information to strengthen or refute people's hypotheses. That's a scientific method. So we, we delved into that quite a bit um, in Cannabis Evolution and Ethnobotany. And that book, that came out in 2013. And it has sold pretty well for a nearly $100 hardback book. Now it's in uh, paperback, and I think it's about 40 U.S. dollars. So it's, it's a bit costly, but there's a hell of a lot to read in there. <laughs> there's something for everybody, no matter what you're interested in in the cannabis class, you can find a chapter in there to start with. It's a huge no. book, and it's um it's really quite dense. So there's there's so much information. Um, I think I uh, sent an email to you just saying uh, I couldn't believe how good this book is. It's uh, by far the best cannabis book that I've I've read for sure. Um, and it is uh, it is a book that I was put onto by. A close friend of mine over here in Australia named Tom Forrest. Shout out to you, Tom. Thank you very much for putting me on to Robert Connell Clark's uh, all of his uh, teachings. Um, Rob, the the history side of it fascinates me, um, but the one thing that was really striking to me was was the taxonomy and uh, all of your, uh, I guess, adjustments to to common knowledge these days. Um, I think one thing that's quite fascinating is in your early days, uh, the whole in, well, I guess the whole Indica sativa thing is something that we'll go into a bit later, but uh, we had different conceptions as to the, the uh, initial uh, origins of cannabis and uh, the way it spread throughout the world. Um, now you've got a, uh, I guess a, a framework that you'd like to, discuss where you talk about different eras of cannabis and its spread and you you describe them as pre-afghan afghan and post-afghan um are mm-hmm. we able to go into a bit of detail about that sure um afghan varieties were really uh are very market markedly different both in the way they look and and the compounds they contain from the rest of cannabis, and that has led me and and some other uh, um, people who study these things. I can't really call myself a taxonomist; that's not my training. And taxonomists uh, don't particularly appreciate my treatment of things sometimes, so I would never uh, besmirch their profession by calling myself one. But I am interested in plant taxonomy, and I look at it at from a very much a human perspective in that what molded these plants into the um, phenotypically and chemotypically different groups, distinctly different groups that they, that they form what you want to call them and whether that's accurate or not follows the rules of nomenclature of taxonomists and not being one, I tend to sort of tromp on their, uh, their uh, ivory tower of, of naming things correctly. It's a bit like trying to speak French when you're only on vacation, but uh <laughs> It's uh, it's good stuff, and keeping this sort of order in the in the uh, animal and plant worlds is really valuable. So I appreciate their efforts. And there's a lot of new uh, technology coming online. All this uh, genome analysis and a lot of, of really high tech chemical analysis to do that that enables taxonomists to make 
deeper decisions than just how people use a certain plant and what they used it for and whether those their flowers are related and in structure. Um, so it's a fascinating field and I, I really like it. But uh, Afghan, the Afghan is important only from the, the point of view of cannabis evolution for drugs. Okay, sure, Afghan plants had seeds, which they planted the next year, but there's not much uh, talk in Afghan culture of using seeds for food or cooking oil or these things. And there's no Afghan fiber cannabis tradition either that's that's uh, well-known or, or readily apparent, at least. So it's about the drugs. And before the late 70s, mid to late 70s, when Afghan varieties began to arrive in the West, in America primarily, but also Europe and uh, Canada early on, um, they were really different from what was already there, which came in marijuana shipments from Mexico, largely um, to North America and Colombia, and uh, also Jamaica and Thailand and uh, some of the African nations and India and Nepal. All those places, as diverse as they are geographically, have can drug cannabis varieties that are much more similar to each other than they are to Afghan cannabis. Um, so when it appeared, it, it didn't just, uh, stealthily hide in, in people's homegrown gardens. It was really different <laughs> and it got a lot of attention. It had a really strong odor. It matured earlier and had darker green foliage, almost shiny foliage at times. And, uh, and it matured earlier and it made pretty fat flowers, but maturing earlier meant that it was shorter and it could get out of the ground before there were law enforcement pressures, before the autumn harvest, basically. So that was revolutionary. And then when, when uh, the pressures really came on, of uh, prohibition pressures, the growing moved indoors and under the lights, attics, basements, bedrooms. Um, and the plant was shorter and faster and really better adapted to indoor uh, horticulture rather than uh, homegrown gardening and uh, at large scale homegrown gardening, but outdoors under the sun. And so that adaptation was key in its evolution as a drug plant in uh, the context of Western culture, if you will. Yeah, that that's the key reason that, that Afghan is important. Um, Mark and I tend to feel that taxonomically, the vast majority of the world's cannabis for all uses is um, separate species. We call it cannabis indica. Okay, and we have subspecies or subgroupings of that uh, that huge, almost all-encompassing um, cannabis genus. To regress slightly, most of the world's taxonomists and just lay people and everybody else, because this is the way that's been looked at primarily for years, and, and maybe the simplified and most correct way to look at it is that cannabis is one species, cannabis sativa. That's the one everybody's heard about for for decades and you could you could say that all cannabis is species sativa and then that there are subgroups of that that's another way to look at it um and a more traditional and more uh, well um well accepted way to look at it we would say that cannabis sativa really as a taxon is circumscribes only european fiber cannabis and its descendants and its ancestors 
but uh, that's that's our view. And that's what we call narrow leaf temp varieties. And uh, the rest of the world that we see is well, world's cannabis. We see is cannabis indica, whether it's Chinese hemp, which we call subgroup chinensis, or whether it's narrow leaf drug varieties, which we call subgroup indica, and or it's uh, used for seed purposes. That could be either of these these subgroups. It's uh, yeah. It's the big, most diverse cannabis group. And a lot of this work comes, it's not something I just pulled out of, Mark and I just pulled out of our heads. A lot of this work, the foundation for this work is work by Carl Hillig, who um, was a student, a graduate student at, the, at uh, Indiana University in Bloomington. Um, I had been a student there before Carl, but Carl um, came along and really did some serious um Looking at secondary plant products, um, the terpenes in particular, as well as the cannabinoids, and also looking at uh, protein banding patterns from some of the uh, primary products of the genes that control these other products, these other things. DNA mapping wasn't within his uh, his uh, possibilities at the time. Um, his work basically um, laid the foundation for what Mark and I um, popularized. Okay, the nomenclature for a large degree, not entirely, but almost all of, of his terminology, not nomenclature, um, as well as as his taxonomic nomenclature for the plants. So, um, yeah, credit should go where credit is due. Um, I don't see that this has really been challenged particularly. There's been more recent research that's uh, in part supported it. Um, so we're sticking with it. It makes a logical way for us to look at the at the situation um what you're probably next going to ask me about is the modern day use of the term sativa in indica correct <laughs> absolutely yes okay kind of leads into that as a natural flow so now in the press you see a misuse of these terms i didn't invent these terms they're sativa and, and uh and uh, indica have been in, in common usage in smoke scientists, at least, those terms since uh, the early 18th century. So it's not new. It was all started by Carl von Linné, Carlos Linnaeus, uh, the Swede, and uh, Lamarck, the Frenchman, so, who came up with Sutiva and Indica. Um, those terms today are, are thrown around loosely by the media and by, by cannabis users. Um, sativa has come to represent the narrow leaflet drug varieties, those that descended, the pre-Afghan varieties that descended from Colombia and Mexico and Jamaica and on and on, as I mentioned before. Um, that's a very similar group. Narrow leaflets, taller, later maturing in general, lighter green color, different um, chemical profiles. Um, those groups are loose called sativas and they do in appearance look more like european hemp than they look like afghan okay so that that is logical in that regard um and indica has come to represent plants that have afghan heritage yes. almost all modern drug cannabis varieties called sinsemia for spanish for seedless these varieties um are Almost all, not entirely, but almost all, 90% hybrids between these two gene pools, whatever you want to call them, whether you want to call them narrow leaf drug, narrow leaflet drug, or broad leaflet drug varieties, 
um, sativas versus indicas. In reality, every almost everything people smoke these days is a hybrid between those two gene pools. Yeah, it's hard to escape. Um, so those terms are now not used correctly at all. I mean, sativa is either the word for all of it or only the the European fiber varieties, fiber and seed varieties. There is no in between, really, in the in the systems that have been proposed so far. So uh, that that's a misnomer. It's never going to go away. But everybody should uh, should know what the actual origins of, of those words are. But that's what they've come to mean in the modern marketplace, I guess you'd say. Yeah. So just to clear so, uh, things up, you would call narrow leaf drug, which uh, the media and uh, I guess cannabis popular culture would call sativa. Uh, you you would refer to it as an indica. I would refer to it as an indica as a member of, of species cannabis indica. Yep. Um, the narrow leaflet subset of that, which we call narrow leaflet drug varieties or NLDs, and that's cannabis indica subspecies indica. Yep. The original one that that uh, Lamarck and other Europeans first saw, O'Shaughnessy. All those, all those people, that's what they were exposed to, Indian cannabis. So hence the name, Indica, from from or pertaining to India. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's uh, it's really nice to hear people uh, challenging, I guess, the uh, the status quo, the norm of, uh, of what we believe to know uh, about the plant. Um, so can we can we go into the usage of the term hemp? Um, you know, what... People ask all the time now, I mean, even at our store here in Perth, we sell uh, hemp oils and uh, hemp meal and things like this. Um, and mm-hmm. a, a really common question is, you know, what what's the difference? Um, so can you just talk the, talk our listeners through the usage of the term hemp and uh, what we do mean when we, when we say it? Yeah, that's a, another um, term with a, a conf- really confused um, – so the sativa indica um, controversy really started relatively recently in the last 10 years. Um, although the terms have been around for a couple of centuries. Um, hemp is in all languages an even older term. Um, and really recently described fiber and seed cannabis, hemp seed, um, hemp rope, hemp textiles. Um, the word hemp was not, used for the cannabis drug plants. Um, those, those plants had local names as well, ganja in India, marijuana um, in the New World, Spanish-derived. And yeah, it, but they had separate terms. And hemp was really reserved for the non-psychoactive, practical, industrial, and at times commercial scale production of fiber and seed. Um, that changed recently, and that changed with the stroke of a pen, and it changed in the United States Senate, and it was called the Farm Bill. And the Farm Bill, for short, um, came out three or four years ago, first version, and defined hemp as it is defined, basically, as it is defined by the Single Convention Treaty on Narcotic Drugs of the United Nations. And that is that hemp and its products, including fiber and seed, are hemp by definition because they contain less than 0.3% 
0.3% of THC. So they're non-psychoactive. Okay, they're not a drug plant. They can't be diverted into drug use. They're safe and harmless. Um, so that was the definition picked up by the Farm Bill, which was, was written to try to help hemp farmers have more crop alternatives. Um, they're not drug farmers. It wasn't created as a loophole for that. And But it really did create um, a new kind of hemp. It created um, hemp that... As long as in hemp products, as long as they were below 0.3% THC, they were hemp by law. And uh, that's not unlike European systems, that the European countries that model themselves after the EU regulations, they're 0.2%. But generally, the law is applied in much the same way. Varieties are, are legal to grow that don't produce flowers with more than, than 0.2 or 0.3% THC, or products thereof don't contain more. Than 0.2 or 3%. So biologically, oh, well. biologically, are we saying that the only real difference uh, is effectively the chemotypic profile of the plant? Yes, and that, that's, that's the primary difference as far as legislation goes. It's just not about the people and what they used it for. It's about what legislation says um, in the end. So, yes, that it's the legislative um, boundary. The problem that's arisen recently is is suddenly hemp is not just fiber and seed. Now hemp is a drug plant. It's a CBD rich or CBG rich or or a THCV rich variety and products that are still called hemp because they're below 0.3% THC. Okay, so that's hemp by law, not hemp by usage. Yeah. What they actually are is drug plants. Exactly. They're cannabis um, and and cannabis sativa hybrids. You know, cannabis indica hybrids. Basically, they're narrow leaf, leaflet broad leaflet hybrids, just like high THC cannabis. In fact, they look much the same. Um, really, look much the same. Um, and they're they're just drug cannabis with an inverse ratio. Instead of high THC to low CBD, like seen some varieties, they're high CBD to low THC, which is now hemp by law. But they're still the same heritage, and they're still grown the same way, and they still look the same and smell the same, essentially, as uh, drug varieties. So that's the change in definition. And that was very recent, but based on a, a word that's been, uh, I mean, hemp. the word hemp throughout history has as started with cannabis hemp, true hemp, or great hemp, as the Chinese would call it, but it's been the name in Chinese and on all, and almost every other language for a number of bast fiber, stem fiber plants. And manila hemp, or Philippine hemp, also known as abaca, is, is a banana. It's a leaf fiber. It's not even a stem fiber. But it's called manila hemp in trade. So it's been a collective noun for a long time. That was its initial confusion of use, and now uh, it has a legislative definition that's really off the charts. I mean, the new industrial hemp is high CBD drug varieties. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Can you correct me if I'm wrong, but is it possible that a, a plant that is defined as hemp in one geographic location because it repeatedly displays chemotypic profile below 0.3%, is it possible to say take those exact same genetics, 
to a different geographic location, maybe at different altitude, different uh, different areas of the world where there's different UV concentrations um, or levels, and produce a plant that is producing in excess of 0.3% uh, THC. Yes. Um, it, it's not by a plant, let's, let's say we have a hypothetically, we have a cutting. Okay, so it's yep. like it will express itself differently in different environments. And cannabis is particularly a plastic regard. It, it is very responsive to climatic differences, period differences in particular. So, yes, it will vary in, uh, in content. It won't vary in ratio very much. Okay. If it, if it uh, produces 0.3% THC when it's harvested at 8% CBD, then that ratio of 8% to 0.3% will still be be uh, valid, largely, very close to the same. But how much THC it produces over 0.2 or 3% is reliant on a lot of different factors, primarily on how long the plant grows. Yeah, sure. Almost all of these drug varieties that are grown for CBD are harvested short of what a sensimir grower would call optimum uh, maturity they're not ripe okay they're picked young and they're picked um, young several weeks before they would have their maximum cbd content for instance because the thc content has crept up to close to 0.3 yeah okay so when they're analyzed by regulatory bodies they have them analyzed a couple of weeks before they're going to harvest them and they have them analyzed when they know that they're below 0.3 percent or else the authorities are telling them to destroy the crop and those same varieties will go over 0.3% if you leave them to the end. So they're they're almost in every case they're they're cut off, they're cut short. Um, the only exception to that is the few people who actually do grow CBD and other minor cannabinoids from hemp varieties, from European hemp, which is also uh, done. But the percentages that the content is much much lower, around two or three percent a lot of times instead of eight or ten percent. So, yeah, but they're well under the 0.2 limit for Europe for THC. So they're totally legal to grow and you can grow them to maturity and harvest the seeds and harvest the fiber. And and, uh, then that you're not getting so much CBD is not so important because you're also getting a, a, a profit from the seeds and from the fiber. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that to me is the way forward for um, modern agricultural cannabis in general. Unless you're after a specialty product, it seems to me that uh, you should grow crops that have all three, uh, you know, outcomes. They're, they have both hemp, traditional hemp outcomes of fiber and seed, and you have the modern hemp outcome of, of minor cannabinoids. So that, that, to me, is the way forward. That's where I'd like to see uh, in hemp breeding headed. I think it is, but I'd like to encourage it to go down those lines, certainly. That's fascinating. I think a lot of hemp farmers uh, currently here in Australia, for sure, are, are frustrated by the uh, by the rules that or the regulations that they are confronted with here, where they are they're not allowed to harvest the flower or, or utilize the flower, um, and they're, they're only allowed to use the fiber. Um, when I talk about the fiber, it just gets me thinking. Uh, you're you're quite into your textiles, uh, your hemp textiles, and things. Uh, can you tell us the the various uses of the fiber and um, 
are they are the fibers used for different purposes in different i guess continents yeah sure i mean it that also is a huge subject and i wish right now we were uh interviewing one of my colleagues git skogland a swedish researcher maybe we'll reach and, uh, out to him and uh and get him on the line one day <laughs> she might be a good one to talk oh, about sorry, well, i'll apologies. give you a quick uh yeah, no problem. I'll give you a quick summary. Um, yeah, Git is uh, is the expert on this. But what we what we know is that the cannabis plant was used for fiber since ancient times. Okay, and there are two basic in Eurasia from from the British Isles to Japan, um, using possibly two different types of hemp, the the indica chinensis. Um, fiber varieties of the east and sativa of the west. Um, but in any event, they're both used for, for spinning and weaving. Very different techniques were used in uh, Asia compared to Europe. Um, those are, are uh, subject of, of papers I've written. Um, basically, some techniques are shared, some strategies for utilizing hemp fiber, and some are not. So there's an independent evolution there between the uh, the two cult, the two cultural sides of uh, Eurasia, which eventually came together, but in the early days evolved separately, I would say. And they were used. Hemp is a very utilitarian fiber, which often confuses its other uses, but it is has been used most famously and very effectively for um, nautical uses, lines um, on ships, anchor ropes to, to twine, basically. For commercial shipping and packaging uses, once again, ropes, twines, canvases, sails made out of canvas, um, but really a lot of commercial and uh, maritime sort of uses. On the other hand, and this is what's of greatest fascination to get, is that it's also used as a very fine fiber to make very high quality what most um, people who appreciate textiles would call fine textiles. And this is uh, prevalent all across the, the spectrum, not in absolutely every location, but pretty much all across Eurasia, Japanese and Chinese and Korean traditional cultures made very fine hemp textiles and still do today on a, on a limited basis. Um, some of the ethnic minorities of uh, China and Southeast Asia, the Hmong and Yi in particular, make very, very fine textiles or did until relatively recently. And uh, European um, places too. Italy is the most famous, but, but better... Uh, Better and more easily seen in Romania, the Ukraine, um, France, French, even commercial textiles are quite fine, and the Scandinavian countries. So that's what people don't understand, is that hemp also is a fine textile. And and um, Git and, uh, did a really good uh, exhibition and conference a year ago, a year ago last August in Lund, um, Sweden. Um, showing fine textiles that people were just really surprised they weren't uh, made of flax, that they weren't flax linen textiles. They were hemp linen textiles and other uses. And it's uh, that, that to us is really fascinating. And, and we want people to know this. Everybody, anybody who's interested in hemp knows about rope, you know, but it's uh, 
these things are fascinating. And a lot of them are very uh, high-level craft creations, as well as some things that really speak to you because of their simplicity. So it's a really diverse plant. And I love, you can tell I love the textiles. And uh, and I keep looking for them. I've searched, I've traveled really a lot in my free time and um, on my own dime, really, to find hemp, traditional hemp textiles and to learn about the people who still were making them when possible and uh, try to record those uh, people visually as well as those field notes. So all that stuff is I... Uh, grow older and don't find as much time as I used to have. I'm still planning on bringing all that out and uh, sharing it with people. So that's that's some some uh, topics that are in the wind for the near future. I hope. Yeah, that's um, very very fascinating. It's it's cool to know that hemp has literally so many uses. And um, touching on on fibers and that, I'd just like to talk about when prohibition came into effect. Uh, how did it affect the fiber trade? Well, that's an interesting topic. Um, in general, people tend to blame the, uh, not blame really, but they hold prohibition accountable for the demise of fiber hemp. And in part, that's true. Um, it's true in America in part, and it's also true internationally in part. But that's not the whole story. Um, the conf- it, hemp was never prohibited by the League of Nations of traditional hemp cultivation, hemp as we used to know it, not drug hemp. Okay, hemp fiber and seed hemp was always um, left out of the legislation because they were after legislating drug cannabis. Okay, but that the League of Nations and then uh, the United Nations and and countries ever since have modeled. The, um, a signatory to the United Nations Single Convention Treaty on Narcotic Drugs, um, beginning in, in 71, uh, ratified by pretty much everybody by 76. Um, they were after c- controlling, really, the drug trade, both opium and, and its derivatives and cannabis and its derivatives, and, and later on other drugs. But those are the two of concern at the time. And Hemp was specifically left out, but there was a lot of confusion with this. And law enforcement didn't, and governments did not make a very good effort in general to educate farmers that, yes, you can still continue to grow hemp fiber and seed, but no, you can't grow this other stuff. And they basically just used the laws to um, oppress its cannabis cultivation in general. Partly in their defense, it was just simpler that way. But uh, it it did deal a blow to, to hemp. A larger blow was dealt economically. Petrochemical um, fibers have really replaced hemp. And, and that's what's actually happened, more importantly. It's more of an economic shift and uh, a technological and economic shift than uh, legal prohibition. And I think that's it's a combination of the two, of course. But the, what really uh, put the nail in the coffin, let's say, is people not needing to grow a to grow and weave a tarpaulin anymore. You can just go buy a plastic one, and they still do. Even in all the hemp, <laughs> traditional hemp cultivation regions, there are pla- you know blue plastic woven Chinese tarps. They're everywhere in the world. They're plastic bags. So yeah, that's that's. Uh, 
the most important thing that's really dealt a blow to cannabis, and that's what has to change to bring cannabis back. It has to be economically feasible. You can't just you can't just be a wish and a promise. It's got to have economic roots. That's the way the world is these days. It has been for a long time, but but it's increasingly cut and dry that the only things that work are things that cut a profit. Cannabis normalization is working around the world for one simple reason: the authorities and others in charge have realized that they can make a profit. And suddenly, it's just not as dangerous as it used to be. It's a miracle. <laughs> yeah, it's that's, a miracle. That's a that's a very yeah. very good point. Um, and that leads me on to the New Zealand referendum, which is which is just closed. The voting is is closed yesterday, and um, you know that is a big incentive for these countries to basically look at it and go, oh wait, there's a there's a huge amount of tax that we're missing out on. Actually, yeah, maybe we should legalize this plant. Um, and I'd just like to touch on what cannabis is being found in New, uh, Australia and New Zealand, um, because compared to the US, I believe it would be quite different. Well, yes. I mean, yes and no. The, the, what you don't have in America, the obvious difference is you do not have a nationwide federal policy. You got fifty states operating on fifty entirely different levels, so that's uh, it, that. The difference with uh, Australia and New Zealand is these are nationwide referendums, and and they're only medicinal, but that's where it starts, and that started in America the same way in each of these states. Um, it, it's interesting to see this. This is see the Commonwealth is leading what's going on here. You've got Canada, England's behind a bit, okay, but. You've got Canada with with uh, blanket legalization on a federal level, starting with medicinal and now for just adult use. Um, then Australia with medicinal and uh, big talk of being an exporting um, country. So that was far out. Um, and now New Zealand coming in line with medicinal and everybody doing it slightly different, but they did a really good job. We'll see how it all plays out. But they moved quickly, relatively quickly. It's not their first attempt at a referendum. But once they decided to get it done, they got it done. And uh, a lot of that was because the leading, the leaders of the nation, past and present, are both women who are, are sensible enough to realize that this is a social issue that's oppressing a lot of people. And and uh, God bless them. You know, this is fantastic. This is uh yeah, putting their putting their careers both you know on on the line to do the right thing, and that's really good. I was really happy to hear that things have gone uh, gone well there and are continuing to go well there. It'll only get better. So yeah, yeah, Congratulations. Um, yeah. So um, um, we're praying for our New Zealand friends. Hopefully, it it works in their favour. Um, yeah. Going on from that, I'd just like to touch on if all this goes ahead. What are we going to look at when it comes to cultivation in uh, Australia and New Zealand? Like, what would we see? Would we see huge facilities or? Well, if you look at the plant in general, you've already seen uh, years now of uh, hemp seed production in Australia and New Zealand, um, particularly in Australia and particularly in Tasmania, where it's really taken off. This hemp seed production um, this last year was double what it was two years before. Um so you're you're rapidly uh, not having to be a hemp seed and oil importing nation. So that's good. 
Um, also in the southern parts of the mainland of Australia, it grows pretty well. Um, very little fiber growing there um, on either side. Some uses for uh, building construction, hempcrete, these sort of uses. Um, great place to grow biomass, but people really haven't put it to use so much yet, but it's also on the increase. Um, and medicinal planting is, well, it's kind of hard to say. It's been going on now in, in um, Australia for quite a while. There are a number of companies that are licensed to produce medicinal cannabis. Um, that What hampered it initially was there wasn't much of a legal market. Um, yeah, absolutely. Australian doctors, uh, really, I think even still, um, should be um, expert practitioners in their field, that not just a general practitioner. Okay, not just your your local town doctor, but somebody who's a if you have a cancer problem is a cancer specialist. Um, See, so you you had a real bottleneck and people trying to just get uh, prescribed to use it for any number of different indications, the dozens of things it's good for. Um, but that has changed. Um, doctors, I think, if, if I understand correctly, have taken the um, initiative in their own hands and are writing recommendations to their patients and the government isn't really stopping them from using legal cannabis. So the, the system has changed. The details I'm not completely um, versed on, but it's opened up and there are a lot more people now who can legally access um, medicinal cannabis in Australia. So there are a lot of country companies. Um, nobody's really producing that much yet. Um, but it's the opportunities are all there, and some people have begun actually producing medicinal cannabis. Um, there are also importations allowed, which has uh, helped, especially with CBD products, as I understand, because there isn't so much production of CBD yet in Australia, but there will be. And uh, New Zealand, I think, will follow, will follow suit. It'll start small, um, and it'll move from there. I mean, they, have a, they also have a small user base. So things can't jump like they do in the States. You know, there's just not the volume of, uh, or even in Europe, and the volume of uh, potential customers. So things will move slowly, and they'll move at the pace that each country wants them to move, which is, I think is good. I, uh, we'll see some variations. It won't just be, uh, you know, locked. They won't just have you know, locked in step. I think they're going to come up with, uh, each country is going to come up with their own variations that work for them. You know, paragons of Western culture making these decisions is super important for the rest of the world. I mean, America needs to step up and make some decisions now. Come on. Yeah, I think yeah. the fascinating thing with America is the the lack of federal direction. Um, you know, it, it, yeah. it is quite bizarre to see uh, all these varying states with all these different rules, and it's uh, you know, you cross state lines, and all of a sudden you can be uh, imprisoned for the rest of your life. Uh, it's quite crazy. Yeah. No, it is really crazy that the uh, the regional and just neighborhood uh, discrepancies and how the laws are enforced is is tragic. Um, they've had the same problem in uh, New Zealand, especially. I'm not so sure about Australia, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's uh, unfair for all and more unfair for some. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, not right a good all. way to put it. Um, what are your thoughts on the CBD, I guess, the open market of CBD in Europe? Um, I mean, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time in Europe and uh, 
it's it's interesting to me to see CBD sold at you know the local delicatessen and uh, corner store or the, the you know the newspaper stand. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's pretty weird too. I it, my thoughts are quite varied. Um, a lot of people in all walks of life for a long time have realized that cannabis compounds are valuable. They've realized that THC is wonderful medicine, but it has this problem that it um, makes people, it alters people's consciousness, which makes the, the conservative authorities nervous. Okay. That's totally understandable. And, and, you know, maybe kids miss a little school or something, but CBD from the start, everybody has said it's not psychoactive and, and, and it's not prescribed by the law. So that was a chance for people to make money and benefit from the values of cannabis, cannabis chemical constituents, in this case, CBD. And that's opened the gates to be an interest in all these other minor cannabinoids, of which there are dozens. So, yeah, it's uh, CBD is a gateway molecule. I mean, if cannabis was always considered a gateway drug to hard drug use, I mean, hemp seed is a great food and it's on the increase and hemp fiber is great for all kinds of things, but it's still relatively neglected. But CBD is the gateway molecule and suddenly we got a chemical from cannabis that's medicine maybe, but not psychoactive for sure. So it's okay. Uh, That's slightly cynical but quite accurate i think and it's it's uh it's good that it's happening but it's sort of of stolen cbd sort of stolen the stage for now at least and maybe that's right in the evolution of the whole process but suddenly cbd is the medicine and thc is the stuff to get you stoned where thc was always the primary medicine and also got altered your consciousness but and cbd was always there also invaluable in many cannabis um varieties but not known or understood and suddenly it's a few good medicinal uses are being found for it and it's stolen the show but that's fine whatever it takes to advance the cannabis plant in general well that is what's happened and it's uh is it going to prove to be a good medicine of course it will be we just need more more research to show even more things it's good for. There's all kinds of initial research that shows it's good. It also shows it's not particularly toxic, even in large amounts. So, yeah, I think it'll move forward. I like the way you put it, where you say it's a gateway molecule and it's uh, it's opening things up for the for the cannabis movement. Um, uh, I feel there's a lot of positivity there for the for the cannabis industries um, to see that that CBD can can be embraced by, uh, I guess, by the whole of society in some way, um, or accepted at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does open doors for, I guess, future movements and uh, future progress. Mm-hmm. Um, can we just talk about uh, with with genetics? Uh, sorry, getting back onto the biology and, and things. With genetics, uh, does geography? Uh, dictate how genetics have evolved in certain areas or is this entirely about trade it's about land races this is something that uh another term that's bandied around a lot these days 
Um, agricultural varieties, um, often called land races for traditional agricultural varieties, are created by two general sets of factors, climate, as you mentioned, and human intervention. Um, human intervention in the form of choosing this plant for the for one product or another, or one appearance or another, or one uh, whatever whatever humans decide they want from a plant, and the the interaction of these two general forces, climate. I mean, how what the photo period is, so that's latitude, and what uh, what the weather's like on average, and how cold it is in the winter, and how hot it is in the summer. Of course, determine what survives and what flourishes. And uh, those that are plants that are well more well adapted give more offspring, and there you go with typical uh, evolutionary uh, success. On the other hand, when plants become domesticated and aren't just living on their own, or in the process of becoming uh, allies of humans and grown by humans and more dependent on humans, then human intervention is is the key. The climate is pretty constant year after year. Human intervention can change more quickly, and humans also move plants from place to place. So that uh, those factors are, are interrelated in creating what's called land races, which are local varieties um, selected and preserved by local people. So one set of climatic conditions that doesn't change very much in one cultural group that probably uses the plant for the same purposes year after year. And those varieties are land races. And those kinds of marijuana, in particular, cannabis for drug use, um, all around the world were land races. There weren't any improved varieties back in the day. So even in the 70s and and 80s when imports were really – imported cannabis was getting – Cannabis is being exported all around the world and being imported in many places. And seeds came along with that. And all those different varieties, whether they came from Colombia or Thailand, were land races. And those seeds came accidentally, not really on purpose, but many, many, many millions of them. And they were planted by gardeners. And you got the early land race. Initially, the the narrow leaf varieties, and then later on, the the broadleaf flat Afghan varieties came into into the game. We ended up with the drug varieties we have today, and it all started with with uh, land races specifically adapted to their local climate and cultural use. And are these land races diminishing? Oh, they are diminishing. Yes, definitely. Um, for several reasons, um, largely because the economic and agricultural and political forces in the world are changing more rapidly now than ever, no matter which direction they're going. And uh, a lot of a lot of these places have been influenced from the outside. Um, most land races developed in have to develop in geographical isolation to a degree, especially cannabis. Otherwise, it crossbreeds with everything around it. And and if everybody lived really close together, we'd eventually sort of have one universal cannabis type, I suppose. But uh, we. We're not as isolated as we used to be. I mean, the, air, the airplane age is what's really brought this on. But even uh, steamliners before that took people to lots of parts of the world and moved products all around the world. So we we have mixed and matched and blended a lot of these land races. But they're, they're not uh, – the cultures have changed. 
Um, farmers don't grow what they used to grow um, in any any crop. So they're not really around so much in, as they used to be and not as readily available because we're not importing the, the same cannabis from the same places. Um, but even if you go travel to these regions, you don't find exactly the same thing you would have found 40, 50 years ago. One reason for that is that uh, with all good intent, uh, modern Western cannabis people took modern varieties to the traditional growing areas. And this, uh, this may be good for overall quantity and production, but it is definitely being a plant that crosses freely through air, wind and pollen. These new introductions have uh, really changed the face of traditional land race growing areas all around the world. And, uh, like I said, it was all with good intent because it was very easy to, to say that what Westerners had was better cannabis from a, a drug use point of view because it was stronger, it matured faster, it smelled better. It had all these advantages, these hybrid advantages that the initial land race, foundational land races lacked. I mean, they they all had part of these characteristics, but it took hybridization to bring all the positive characteristics of of all and some of the negative ones as well from all these land races into hybrid modern varieties. So we thought these are better. We took them back to Jamaica and said, "Yeah, Rasta, why don't you grow this one? It matures fast, you know." And 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 they'd grow it and and it crossed with their lamb spread and it crossed with their late maturing super iry stuff that now people look back and go, "What man, that's gone." I mean, what happened? You know. Yeah, it's quite sad, quite a shame. You know, modern high yielding varieties, as they're called. Yeah, that's that's replaced. Quite a shame. You know, and it, it's yeah, we, it wasn't done intentionally or maliciously, but it is the outcome of what happened. Yeah, that's um, yeah, it, it's quite quite a shame to see it disappear. And I guess the reasoning for for the adaptation and the hybrid hybridization uh, is. It, we can understand why it's gone that way. Um, Robert, yeah. we're getting towards the hour mark, which is usually when we chop off our interviews. Um, we're wondering if there's any chance in the future, if we could have a chat with you one day to maybe talk about uh, perhaps ways that these land races can, uh, can make a way back, uh, perhaps ways that we can get back to some of that isolation. Um do you think you'd be interested in something like that, Matt? Oh yeah, sure. No, we can always talk about it. There's so much to talk about with cannabis. Just, uh, yeah, I'm always here for you. Let's do it. That's it's awesome. Fun. Robert, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on board, mate. You, you are a wealth of knowledge. Um, it's, it's always uh, cool to, I, I mean, I listen to some of uh, the podcasts that have had you on. I've seen you on YouTube. I've uh, read your book. And uh, you, you're just one of the main men in cannabis when it comes to knowledge. So thank you very much for joining us, Adam. Uh, Robert's going to be leaving us. You want to shout him out? Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Rob, where could we contact you and find your books? Um, Amazon. I mean, uh, sorry, they've been the death of the local bookstore, but uh, there they are. And uh, yeah, they're all there. Hashish is about to be re-released. Um, it was out of print for a while. I think uh, Evolution and Ethnobotany is still available. If not on Amazon, you can get it through University of California Press sales site, and they should still have soft copies of it. Um, 
Marijuana Botany is still around. I'm pretty sure you can Amazon that. Um, hemp Diseases and, and Pests is a kind of a more rare book, another expensive one. It's published by Commonwealth Agriculture Bureau in uh, the UK. And that came out in 2098. Anyway, it came out around 2000, um, yeah, and cannabis. Uh, that that's another um, book. It's a John McPartland's book. He's the the main author, and uh, David Watson and I here in the Netherlands helped him out, the Horta Farm crew. And uh, but it's really his baby, and he's uh, he's a, the world expert really on on cannabis fungal diseases and all kinds of other nasty stuff. And he's uh, working on a new book, I hear. But that book is is a bit hard to find. But Cabby probably still has it. Um. Yeah, everything's pretty much still available. So yeah. they're they're out there. You just got to go through the normal channels. Um, I don't know if they sh- if the individual um dealers ship to Australia or not. I guess it'd be up to the individual companies. But American Booksellers Exchange, Abe, uh, it's been around for ages. It's been around longer than Amazon, I think, or at least from around the same time. Um, that's a coalition of listings from hundreds thousands of small bookstores that are staying alive used bookstores are staying alive by using abe it's a wonderful service and uh it's a company it's a real deal so yeah look on abe if you can't find things or they seem out of print that's just a little a little lead for any kind of books that you're looking for actually that's a really cool lead I'm, i'm gonna check that out uh pretty much as soon as I get off this podcast, uh, Robert. And uh, to, to the listeners uh, at home listening to this episode, I've really got to say that this, particularly this uh, this latest book, uh, Cannabis Evolution and Ethnobotany, but they're all great books, um, well and truly worth your money, well and truly worth your time because they're, they're amazing books uh, with uh, a real depth uh, to them. There's they're, they're quite dense in their information. Every page is worth something. Uh, jump on it, guys. It's it's well and truly worth getting. Uh, Rob, thank you very much for your time, mate. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and uh, we look forward to our next interaction with you, bud. Great. Sounds good, guys. Have a good summer. We're going into winter here, so enjoy it for us. <laughs> Hopefully you get some nice snow over there, mate. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It's uh, warmer every year and a little grayer and mushier every year, so... <laughs> We'll see. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Rob. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Catch you later. Bye-bye. See ya. Thank you for listening to another episode of Canter. Any guest views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and not necessarily those of the hosts. Canter strongly suggests listeners research local, state, and federal laws and regulations before conducting any cannabis-related activity. 